Welcome to the First Pres podcast, which features the message from this past Sunday's worship. If you would like to worship with us in person, our services are Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, 10, and 11 o'clock. You can learn more about First Pres at www.first-pres.org. So today's the big day, the big showdown. I don't know if you've picked your side yet, but since you're here, I'm guessing you've already chosen who you want to win. I've heard today's big event described as good versus evil, darkness versus light. Those are pretty big claims. I've also heard it talked about as a showdown between age and experience and youth and, well, maybe not quite as much experience. Whatever the case, I know who I'm rooting for. And the reality is that the winner has already been determined. I actually know who it's going to be, and so do you. (laughs) I'll tell you right now who's going to win. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. And yes, right, there is that other showdown today between these two. That's kind of a small deal in the big scheme of eternity. So we're not going to talk much about that one today. What I'm referring to is the cosmic showdown, the one that really matters and changes how we live our lives and who we serve. So, and open your Bibles to Luke 4. Let's read this Super Bowl story. The devil meets Jesus in the wilderness, and the showdown begins. Listen to the word of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Lord, may your word bring light to us this morning. We want to hear your voice, and we need your light to shine. So open your word to us, in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture begins by telling us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And Luke gives us a few word clues to help us get into this setting. Wilderness, 40, led tempted. If you're a student of the Bible, and some of you are, what emerges in your mind is another wilderness story, an ancient story of another time when Israel was led by God into the wilderness, where they lived for 40 years, a place where they were tested and formed. 
What I want to do first today is make the connection here for you between the story of Israel, God's chosen people, and the story of Jesus, God's chosen one. In Scripture, the desert is a known setting. In the Old Testament, the wilderness is a place of frustration and striving, a place of formation and failing, of wandering and learning to trust. If we follow the path carved by Israel in the wilderness, which is recorded in the book of Exodus, it is one of confusion and trust, of worship and wandering, of doubling back and retracing steps and taking 40 years to take a journey that probably could have taken a couple months, geographically speaking. I like this map of what might, it might have felt like to a little child. <laughs> Perhaps your life feels a little bit like this all over the place. The desert story is familiar to many of us. We all know what it's like to hit a wilderness spot in our lives, to strive to make changes, to feel distant from God, and to lack hope. It's easy to get lost in the deserts of our lives, to long for something more, and to find that we're relearning lessons that we thought we had mastered already. Maybe some of you today are feeling like wilderness dwellers. Or you're close to somebody right now who feels like they're in the wandering in the desert. But there is good news today. Our scripture reads that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. It's an intentional stop on his ministry journey. Luke records that Jesus has just been baptized, filled with his Spirit, and the public ministry of Jesus is about to begin. But instead of going straight into it, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. You see, there's work to be done in the desert, unfinished business, if you will, and Jesus is the one to do it. In fact, Jesus is the only one who can do it. Do what, you might ask? What does Jesus need to finish in the desert? Well, I submit to you this morning that perhaps Jesus had to go to the desert to revisit the wanderings of Israel and to carve a new path to undo the path of ceaseless striving and frustration, of despair and death. And so the Spirit leads him right into that place to fill the desert with hope, to flood the desert with light and life and love. 40 years becomes 40 days. Each temptation that Jesus faces mirrors a testing that Israel faced, and each response that Jesus gives pushes back the forces of evil and carves out a new response to the temptations before him. The temptations center around these things, hunger, worship, trust, the temptations of the desert. Let me say a word about each one. First, as we read the scripture, there's the testing of the empty stomach of hunger. We read that Jesus is hungry after fasting for more than a month, of course. The devil tells him to turn stones to bread to alleviate his need. Israel, too, as you recall, struggled with hunger. They had to learn to trust God to feed them in God's way day by day. They had to trust God to give them daily bread and not to hoard it for the next day. What hunger are you learning to trust God to fill today? Israel had to learn that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8. Jesus will trust the Father to feed him in the desert. The devil then instructs Jesus to worship him 
and he, the devil, will give Jesus the world if he will do that. The children of Israel are tempted over and over to worship other gods, the gods of the cultures around them to short-circuit their circumstances and find quick relief in accommodating to the practices of others. What are you tempted to put in first place in your life today? Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus again speaks from Deuteronomy, this time it's chapter six. Jesus will worship the Father in the desert and he will trust the path of the Father for him here in the wilderness. We know that the Father will give to Jesus an everlasting kingdom, but it's in the Father's time and from the Father's hand. As the devil attempts to break the relationship of father and son, Jesus speaks from strength. He knows who he is. He is one with the father. And then the devil, you notice, switches tactics. He's kind of a quick study. Jesus keeps quoting scripture, so the devil gives it a try, tempting Jesus to put God to the test. Is God really God? This time the devil splits off some verses from Psalm 91, which says that God will catch him if he falls and not allow even his foot to be hurt. God says he would never allow your suffering, Jesus. Test him. Is it true? Will he catch you? But Jesus is a student of the word, as you know. He is the word. And Psalm 91, he knows, is a psalm spoken to those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High. As a whole song... It's about staying close to the Father, finding refuge in the Father. Deuteronomy 6, again, do not put God to the test. The scripture refers to a time Moses and the people tested God at, at Massa. Not a great moment in Israel's history. Hunger, worship, trusting God, each time the devil tempts, Jesus pushes back with the scriptures. You may notice that Jesus quotes Deuteronomy each time. The entire interchange is like an oral exam on Deuteronomy 6 to 8. When you're reading through the Bible, don't skip Deuteronomy. It's important. Does Jesus know his Bible? Yes, of course. Probably not best to go to a war of words with the one who wrote the words. <laughs> but the devil doesn't quite get this. The passage ends saying he'll be back for more. He's going to look for a more opportune time. Okay, so perhaps not such a quick study, but we'll know to look for the devil's presence again later in Luke. But let's take a moment to say a few words about the devil. He shouldn't get much airtime, to be certain. But Luke introduces him to us right here for the first time in this story, and we get our first glimpse at the devil's game plan, what he's about. Devil, the Greek diabolo, literally means deceiver, splitter, to throw one, something through and split apart. He's the one who plants seeds of doubt and mistrust. He's the author of fake news, for sure. His main goal in the story, though, is to sever the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And his voice, as you know, will often sound like he cares about you and about your situation. Why, why don't you fill your own emptiness, your own hunger, 
Why be empty when you can be full and you can do the filling? Or something like this. God promises many things, but I can give them to you right now for a small price. Why wait for God to deliver good things when I can deliver them now? Or perhaps something like this. Is God really for you? The scripture says he won't let even your foot get hurt. Make him prove it. Test him. Did he really say that? We've heard this voice before in the garden, in the beginning. You remember Genesis 3? The one who got the whole thing started, the one who is still at it, attempting to split our trust in God. The devil will cloak himself as one who knows what's what in your life, as the one who can offer you a shortcut, an easy way out of hunger or suffering. He will place himself in front of you as the one who can give you what you want or what you think that you need. The devil will do everything in his power to stand in the place of the true giver of life, to break our dependence on our true creator. As one theologian puts it, he is a shabby substitute. I kind of like that phrase. It sticks. Next time you sense the deceiver tempting you away from the true giver of life, call him what he is, a shabby substitute. In fact, if that's all you remember from today, that's enough. The devil is a shabby substitute for God. Just walk away. In 1969, Coca-Cola came out with its slogan, The Real Thing. And from the moment Coca-Cola emerged on the scene, it began to evolve its marketing campaign. In 1886, the slogan was simply, drink Coca-Cola. By 1906, the slogan was this, the great American temperance beverage. <laughs> Not quite as catchy. But Coke, the real thing, that's what's embedded in most of our memories over time. That's from 1969, and then various forms of that followed. Have a Coke and a smile. Coke is it. You can't beat the real thing. Just a few years after Coke began, Pepsi emerged on the scene, 1893. You might not know this, but it was first called Brad's Drink after its creator. And then in 1898, renamed Pepsi-Cola because it was a digestive aid for dyspepsia. I know, you didn't know that. Its best-known slogan, perhaps, was the Pepsi Generation, or Generation Next. And these two colas have been going head-to-head -head in the Super Bowl of Cola ever since. Likely, one of these colas is, to you, the real thing, and the other, a shabby substitute. But regardless of whether you prefer Pepsi or Coke, how do we really know the real thing from a shabby substitute? Luke's goal is that you would know the certainty of Jesus as God's son. The Holy Scriptures are not just a collection of old sacred writings, but the word of God which comes to us by the light of the Holy Spirit 
The written word of God points us to Jesus, the real thing. In the scripture, we are led to Jesus, and the scriptures nurture a real relationship between us and God in Jesus Christ. In the desert, Jesus gives us a pattern of faithful response, a pattern of faithful following. With each temptation, Jesus responds by speaking the word of God. The word of God lights the way in the desert. The word of God shows us the path ahead when we are lost in the wilderness. The word of God has power over the deceiver to push him out and help us find our way. Follow me, says Jesus. I will show you the way in the wilderness. Follow me, says Jesus, I will show you streams in the desert. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years earlier that, that Jesus would visit the desert. I mean, listen to what Isaiah wrote. Chapter 35, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 43, I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I will provide water in the wilderness streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Jesus has been to the wilderness, and there is now light and life and streams of water flowing in the desert places. Madeline Olingle was a writer who had immense influence on my life as a teenage girl through her Wrinkle in Time series. You may also know that she, her as a Christian writer. But her path, like many of ours, was one of wandering for a long time. She grew up in church. She loved her parents, but her parents had her late in their marriage. They had already established their own patterns, and those didn't include Madeline very often. She spent a lot of time with their Irish Catholic housekeeper and with her books. She bounced from school to school, eventually being dropped off at boarding school without any warning. When she was 17, her father died. And finding no comfort in her Episcopal community, she walked away from organized religion and became a deeply unhappy, deeply moral artist agnostic, who also happened to read the Bible because her writing professor at an otherwise irreligious college told her she had to. And somehow the story of God embedded deeply within her life. The word of God guided her. The word of God lit her way. And her biographer writes this about her life. She taught us that it's not our own light that we bring into a situation, but the light of Christ we attempt to shine on others. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Everywhere we go, we're assaulted with voices telling us what to think and how to think. Most of them further divide us. They split us off from one, from one another. Consume this, give your life to this, try this, think this. But the word of God is our light. The word of God is our guide. The word of God draws us to Jesus. He is our light. Sometimes at night I get caught, probably like many of you, in a loop of anxiety. The desert rushes into my brain, into my heart, and I have trouble finding the way out. I feel trapped. It's hard to sleep. I can't figure out how to, how to move in a new direction. The darkness feels real and heavy and impenetrable. 
And in those moments, as you know, there is no rationalizing to bring peace. In those moments, I have to rely on the word of God that's hidden in my heart to help me find rest. For me, it's often, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Over and over, allowing the light of God to penetrate my difficulty. For Jesus in the desert, it's Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Not a bad psalm to hide in your heart for desert times. Not a bad psalm for the church to hang on to in times of strife and confusion. The desert is a place to cling to Jesus, to let the word of God go deep, and to clarify our trust in God. The wilderness is a tough place to be, but the word of God is light and life in desert places, reminding us who we are and who we belong to. In the wilderness, we discover a God who is there. This message for us today is great news, but let me offer this. It's not only news for you and for me and for us. You have people in your life right now who are in the desert, who are struggling in the wilderness, feeling alone and isolated, broken and without hope. They need to know that they are not alone, that Jesus is there with them, that the word of God can bring light into dark places. How might you love them simply and clearly in their place of need and hunger? A prayer, a note, a word of hope, something to help them in those moments. We learn today that Jesus wins the desert. But perhaps the most encouraging thing you can do today is let somebody else know that. In fact, of all the big events taking place today, the sharing of such news may be the most important thing that happens today. Your word is a light. Your word is a lamp. And it beats back the darkness, leading us into the arms of God. Amen? Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word this morning, thankful for your holy word, leading us to the living word, Jesus Christ, who gives us life, who shines light into our dark places so that we might have hope. Lord, if there is anyone that you're laying on our heart this morning who needs to hear that news, encourage us to speak that today. You are light, and you beat back the darkness. Be with us be in us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our First Prez podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.first-prez.org.